we are going to be continuing through the book of Acts this morning, and we're really looking at this passage that is about the church. And so last week, Jordan did a great job of unpacking this sermon by Peter where he laid out the gospel and then 3,000 people got saved. And what gets formed is the church. And what we see in the text we're going to look at this morning is that the spirit-filled church is multi-dimensional. Okay, here's what I mean by that. You could be a church that is sort of good at one thing, like you have good Bible teaching, you have good worship, or whatever it is. But when the Spirit of God infuses a group of people, we see a bunch of things that maybe normally we don't think of going together come together in one group. Okay, so in terms of the game of basketball, I'm a one-dimensional player. I wouldn't even consider myself a basketball player. Okay, I grew up in Indiana. We always had big driveways. And after school, about every day, I would go home, eat a peanut butter banana sandwich, go outside, and shoot hoops for two hours. Okay, so I can shoot a basketball. But I've started playing at the YMCA. And I play a couple days a week. And here's the thing. I've realized very quickly, I am a shooter, not a basketball player. Okay, so there's this one guy, I call him affectionately Mr. YMCA. And often we're like matched up against each other. And here's the thing about Mr. YMCA. He can pass. He knows how to set a pick. He knows where he's supposed to be on the floor. He can shoot. He sees the floor. And I am often just saying to him like, you really know how to play basketball. That's awesome. Just good at a lot of different things, right? But here's the thing. He is a multi-dimensional basketball player. I'm a single, I, I have a single dimension. And here's, here's my theory, okay? The last time I played organized basketball was in seventh grade. He likely actually played basketball for an extended period of time. I was shooting hoops in the driveway. He's actually being coached and being taught how to play the game of basketball. That's why he's a multidimensional player. What we see is when we take this church thing into our own hands and we try to do it, we become a one-dimensional church. But when we allow the Holy Spirit to be our coach, he makes possible what never would be possible on our own. So here's what the Spirit-filled church looks like. Acts 2, 42 through 47. And then we'll look at four dimensions of the Spirit-filled church. Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amazing picture of the church, isn't it? Four dimensions of the spirit-filled church. Biblical teaching, reverent worship, spontaneous generosity, and joyful outreach. 
biblical teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The first observation I want to make is that the foundation of the church is the Bible. This church was formed when the apostle Peter got up and he preached a sermon. The foundation of the church was biblical teaching. These people heard teaching from the apostles. They responded to that teaching and the teaching began to change their lives. You don't have a church if you don't believe the Bible. You might think, okay, how did you get to biblical teaching from this? I thought the text said the apostles' teaching. The way that this works is that Jesus chose these 12 apostles. One of them, Judas, betrayed him. Paul, another apostle, was added later. But he tasks these apostles, specifically just a few of them, with writing the scriptures for us. They wrote them and God wrote them. They were carried along by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so the apostles' words are God's words to his church. And so we know the truth of God in Old and New Testaments through the writings of both the prophets and the apostles. And what we see is that the apostles' teaching is based on the prophets' teaching. So in accepting the apostles' teaching, we also need to accept the entire teaching of the Old Testament. But here's the thing. We see that their acceptance of the apostles' teaching is not mere intellectual head knowledge. I think often as Western people, we think, okay, to have a church based on biblical teaching means we look at sort of this list of propositions and we're like, yes, I agree with all of those things. But he uses a different word here to describe their reaction to hearing the apostles' teaching. It's devotion. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. This word devotion means something like knowledge and submission combined. They understood the teaching and they submitted to the teaching. It became the standard of their conduct. And so it would be easy for us to read this text and say, I love the community that's represented in this text. Like people are sharing everything that they have. People are joy filled. They're praising God. I want our church to be like that. But if we focus on the Bible, that's going to be a little bit of a problem because people who are focused on the Bible, they're kind of stuffy intellectuals. And the Bible says, no, no, no. In order to become that type of community, it's not merely just intellectual assent to the text of the Bible, it's actually devotion to the teaching of the Bible. Okay, so I've seen this illustration before. I think it could be helpful to us as a church as we think about the way that we think about the Bible, okay? There's essentially three different postures that you can have to the Bible. One is you can think of the Bible as one voice in the room, okay? So imagine this, 
there's a circle of chairs. You've got a bunch of friends from Salt City Church sitting in those chairs. And on one of the chairs is sitting the Bible. And here's how you think about the Bible. You say, okay, John, what do you think? And he shares what he thinks. You're like, oh, that's cool. All right. And then you say, hey, Rob, what do you think? He shares what he thinks. And you say, Kathy, what do you think? She shares what she thinks. Hey, Bible, what do you think? Oh, that's nice. It's another opinion. Thanks for sharing. I'm glad we all got a chance to share. That's sort of this idea of being around the Bible, right? So we know what the Bible says, but it doesn't really have authority in our life. It's just one voice in the room. Here's another posture you can have with the Bible. We're hiding behind the Bible, right? And so here's the thing. We've got all these biblically informed opinions that come from the Bible, but this is sort of like the Fox News approach, okay? We're like, we've got all of these thoughts and they're all based on the Bible, but here's the, the reason that we're doing this, so that we can judge other people. It's not a really authority in our life. It, it's something that we use to hide behind and to club other people with. It becomes a way that we justify ourselves and condemn the world. So we hide behind the Bible. So you can be around the Bible. You can hide behind the Bible. Or here's the approach that we're seeing here. We're under the Bible. We are under the authority of the Bible. We see the beauty and the grace of God represented in the Bible and we also feel the weight of God's commands on our lives personally. And we leave each week from church and we actually try to apply the Bible. And here's what we find. It is really hard. In fact, it's possible. And so what we begin to realize is we can't do this on our own. We need the community of God. We need to link arms with other people. We need help. We need the spirit of God living inside of us and we need the community beside us in order to live out this text. But if you don't put yourself under the Bible, you'll never need the community of God. Never feel like you need the spirit of God. But when we actually seek to obey it, we are humbled to the dust. So here's my question for you. I think this gets at it for all of us. How do you know whether you're, you sort of have this, you're around the Bible, you're hiding behind the Bible, or you're living under the Bible approach? Is your heart more characterized by judgment toward the outside world or by a humble attempt to follow the commands of God. Judgment toward the outside world or a humble attempt to follow the commands of God. And your answer to that question might lead you to see that you think you're living under the authority of the Bible, that you're devoted to the Bible, but you're not yet devoted to the Bible as you ought to be. Okay, first thing dimension of the church, we see biblical teaching. 
Okay, but I think sometimes, again, we think of biblical teaching, we think of intellectual assent or even outward, just outward obedience. But when the Spirit is at work in the midst of a group of people called the church, we also see that their hearts are stirred. There's reverent worship. Isn't that an awesome sentence? It says, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So we see this devotion to the word of God. There's this knowledge that's being put into action through submission. And what happens when we put ourselves under the authority of the word of God and we're seeking to live that out in our lives as we experience the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and our posture before God becomes one of awe. Our sin is exposed. His grace is made evident to us. We're not standing proudly comparing ourselves to other people, but we're standing in the presence of God and we're realizing each week that we come together in worship and each time we open up his word in a group of people and spend time in his presence, we realize that he's the only hero of the story. We're not comparing ourselves to each other, envying each other. Instead, we're comparing ourselves to God and realizing that we fall far short of his standard and that amazingly, he still accepts us through his grace. So it's this combination of God's holiness and his humility in Christ, his greatness and his graciousness that stirs us as we're devoted to obeying his commands, not to feel like we're condemned by him because we're not, because Jesus was condemned in our place, but instead to know that we are accepted in the presence of a holy God. So we're filled with awe. You know what's really fun? Is explaining this reality to kids. Explaining them who God is. Because I think we can hear the different stories in the Bible, see different pictures of, of who God is in those stories, and we can sort of become immune to it, right? So I remember as an intern at a church when I was in college, it's kind of a older traditional church, they had children's ministry. And what that meant was the kids actually came up during the service. Didn't you guys do this? And so the kids would kind of sit on the blue steps of the church and face out into the pews. And I had my back to the congregation and I was explaining this story to the kids. And it happened to be the story of Jesus calming the sea. And I remember just saying, and then, you know, the, the storm is raging everywhere. And Jesus just got up and he said, peace, be still. And the storm just stopped. And all the kids are just like wide-eyed. And this one kid just goes, whoa! His whole body is just, I'm just like, yes. That is the right response. That is awe. Because it's this combination of seeing the greatness of God 
in being able to calm a storm and his graciousness in being in a boat with human beings so that he can rub shoulders with them. And the place that we see this most preeminently in scripture is on the cross. Didn't Jordan do a good job explaining this last week? Great job explaining this last week. Peter has just preached a sermon to this church explaining to them both that they crucified Jesus. Their sin hung Jesus on the cross. Our sin hung Jesus on the cross. And Jesus' love is what kept him there. The creator of the universe went to the cross for you and me. Reverent worship is created in the heart by deep truth about God. We don't have to choose between being a spirit-filled church that loves and treasures the biblical teaching and is devoted to it, and a church that is seeking a real heartfelt experience with God. When the Holy Spirit comes, you get both. The deep truths of God resonate in your mind and your heart comes on fire with his beauty and goodness and you stand in awe of who he is. And this posture with God, this devotion to him and this awe before his presence, it changes your community. You become a different type of people. And one of those evidences is that you become a people of generosity. And what Luke points out specifically in this text is that we become a people of spontaneous generosity. Verses 44 and 45, it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Gut punch. Right? There's maybe no more convicting two verses for the American church than those two verses. Right? We've talked about this before. It keeps coming up. It's in the text. I'm not standing on a soapbox going on a rant. But the acceptable sin in the American church is a sin of greed. But what's interesting about this text and maybe makes it more convicting than other passages is that we're not talking about regular giving to the local church in this passage. Not talking about tithing. We're not talking about sort of checking the box of giving 10% of your income to the local church. We're talking about something that might be harder for a lot of us because it involves some spontaneity. Some of us are more spontaneous than others, but there's not many of us who are spontaneous with our money. So here's what the church is doing, right? They're seeing other people's needs and they, at the present time, don't have the means to meet those needs. 
And so they're selling their stuff to meet each other's needs. Now, in this passage, we're not talking about giving to non-Christians. We're talking about what their community was characterized by. Everyone is finding out that other people have needs, which means they're super relationally connected to each other to know what kind of needs are present in the group. And then they're responding by meeting those needs. Some of you might be thinking, okay, what does this look like? They're selling their possessions. Does that mean I'm supposed to sell my house? Does that mean there's lots of needs that are present all over the place? Like there's gonna be a bunch of students who graduate with $100,000 in student debt. Does that mean you're supposed to sell your house and pay off their debt? Maybe, right? Maybe. You have to at least say maybe, right? Just based on the text, not based on your own experience, your own desires, your own wants. You have to say maybe. That's true. But let me also point out, this is kind of a funny observation, that there's wisdom that's also attached to this, okay? You notice in verse 46, we'll get there in just a little bit, but just this one observation, it says that they were breaking bread in their homes, some of the people didn't sell their homes, right? Like, even though they are selling their belongings and they are giving them to each other and they are caring for each other, what characterizes this community is this radical, spontaneous generosity and wisdom, right? And that's what all of us have to wrestle with as believers is what am I really using in my life for the kingdom of God? What has God made me not to be an owner of, but to be a steward of and to use for his kingdom as a real, tangible, material possession? And what has he called me to sell and get rid of and get, give away? And I think the answer is going to be some of both. Because we are the most materialistic culture in the history of planet Earth. Which means you have a bunch of stuff that you don't need. But you have some things that you do need. And I can't tell you, I can't like make a list like, now I'm going to put up a list of all the things in your life that you really don't need and all the things that you could be a steward of. It's not that simple. We want it to be that clean cut. But it's an example of the, the Holy Spirit living inside of us and giving us each wisdom. And we need to both be devoted to God's teaching for our life, but also not judgmental to the people around us because he might call someone else to do something different than you, and that's okay. Guys, I saw kind of a, an amazing example of this. Um, I think I've talked about this before. I was out in Oakland, California, and Jordan and I, some other staff, before we even planted Salt City, were around this mostly Korean church out in California. And most of these people were making a lot of money. And so they had gone to Berkeley and many of them had gone to Berkeley in order to make a lot of money. And basically just living in Oakland, the cheapest house you can buy is like $600,000. So people have some cash. But here was the thing, their perspective as a whole community had been so radically changed actually by this passage. They call themselves an Acts 2 church. 
had been so radically changed by this perspective that they literally were doing this. And we basically went and stayed in host homes at this church and were just sort of observing this community for a couple days. And it was amazing. Like, for example, Jordan and I, a group of guys, were standing outside of the church building talking about our desire to go into San Francisco one day. But we didn't have a car. And so we were like, oh man, I wish we had a car. We'd like to go in there. But I guess we'll just have to walk somewhere around here, grab something to drink and hang out. And one of their church members, this isn't a staff person, nothing like that. Just somebody walked by, just one of the members of their church and just said, oh, you need a car? And just tossed us the keys to her minivan without even asking where we were going or how she was going to get the van back. And literally just like, eh. like, like you would just toss somebody like a dollar if they were standing in a vending machine and, you know, didn't have a dollar in their pocket. And we were able to just like take the minivan, come back and be like, somebody gave us this minivan and like other people in the church knew by like her keychain whose minivan it was and somehow it got back to her. <laughs> and we're just like, this is incredible. And the only way that this is possible in our lives as believers is not by us sitting around saying, oh, I wish we were a, a spontaneously generous church. I wish I went to a church where people were generous like that. It really comes down to each of us looking in the mirror and saying, okay, God, what kind of steps can I take? Not just toward tithing, which I think you should do, give to the local church, but also having this attitude of my possessions aren't my possessions. My possessions are God's. I'm going to share what I have with anyone who has any need within our community of faith. And then this is what begins to happen. That is attractive to the outside world. People look at that and they're like, I want what they have. I want to be part of that community. And so there begins to be joyful outreach. 46 through 47 says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So at that time, the temple was sort of a social hub. There was a marketplace in the temple. People worshiped at the temple. People prayed at the temple. And so the church was continuing to gather at the temple. So they gathered publicly. And they're meeting other people and they're engaging in business there and all those sorts of things. So they're hanging out together in public and they're meeting other people. And then here's kind of how I reconstruct what, what's happening here. Then they're hanging out at the temple for a while and they're like, what are your lunch plans? I don't know. What are you thinking of doing? You going out to eat? You having people over? I don't know. Okay. Why don't you come over to my house? But then there's also sort of this, these unbelievers who have been watching them and seeing what they're doing publicly in their worship and prayer and just how they interact with each other. And they're just simply saying, hey, would you like to come over to my house as well and share some food with me? Right? So they're breaking bread together. And here's what these people are doing at their homes. They're seeing what's distinctly different about these Christians is that they're not complaining about their boss. And they're not 
mad at their kids. But instead, what they're seeing in their lives is that they are praising God. And they're being kind to other people. And that difference begins to make unbelievers ask questions. It's sort of like ordinary, radical hospitality. Opening up our home, letting you come over and observe the genuineness of our faith. Now, here's what will, will keep us from doing that, right? It's a couple different things. But one of those things is we're not overflowing with thanksgiving and praise. And so we're kind of afraid to invite people into our home because if they really see the reality of our home, maybe that wouldn't be so attractive to them. Maybe it wouldn't draw them to God, but we're afraid maybe that would draw them away from God. So in order to really have this outreach mentality, this hospitality, this open door policy at your house, there has to be something attractive about what's going on there. But it also could be, and and this is a sad reality, I think, in the church, that there is an attractiveness to your life, but there's a fear of people seeing sort of the superficial dirt in your house, the literal dirt in your house, right? So you'd be that person who's like at the temple, you're praising God, all that. You really want to invite that person? You're like, I left the laundry in the hallway. It's spread everywhere. And my kid, you know, dumped their milk out and I didn't clean that up. They're like, I'm not going to have anyone over. Because maybe you're in more of an American entertainment mindset than you are a biblical hospitality mindset. Right? Let me, let me give you a picture of biblical hospitality as opposed to like American entertainment. I remember growing up as a kid, my mom just learned with me as her son to just set an extra plate at the table, okay? So basically, I would be in high school, and I was very inconsiderate of my parents. And I've since apologized for that. But I was very inconsiderate, and so I wouldn't even tell my parents when I was having people over for dinner. I'd just bring them home from golf practice or whatever. And my mom, she just made enough food. And and it was okay that it was paper plates and it was okay that the food wasn't that great. And sometimes we just had leftovers, right? Sometimes it's just like peanut butter jelly sandwiches. Sometimes she's getting the griddle out and just making pancakes for everybody. Whatever it was, to my parents, it was more important that our home was a welcoming place for strangers or for my friends or whoever it was than it was that our lives were totally put together. What would this look like, guys, if we latched on to this ordinary radical hospitality thing in our church? And instead of going on rants on social media or trying to share the gospel on a napkin during lunch, which is super hard for you guys who are in the workplace, right? What if we invited people into our homes and followed this Acts 2 model And simply just let people see our lives and shared food with them. And then 
when the opportunity came up, sharing with them about the hope that we had in Jesus. Do you know what I think would happen? Day by day, the Lord would add to the number of those who are being saved. Don't you love that Christianity, it's not rocket science. And notice this, it's the Lord who adds to the number. The pressure's off. It's not your responsibility to win your family or your coworkers or your neighbors to Jesus. It's simply your responsibility to open up your home, open up your life, and to be honest with them about your faith. And sometimes they'll get saved and sometimes they won't. But won't it be amazing if we step out in faith and we get to see God work? Guys, this is possible. It's impossible for us to just go out and do all this stuff, to be devoted to the Bible's teaching, to be reverent in our worship, to be spontaneous in our generosity, to be joyful in our rage. But it's actually possible because if you have believed in Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you. And these marks are evident in our church. The Holy Spirit is here. And so let's go out with confidence this week and follow after him in what he has us to do. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you um, that having believed in you, this multi-dimensional element of the church is present at Salt City. That's amazing. The same spirit who was in the first century church and dwelling in the apostles dwells in us. And so, God, help us not to walk around in guilt and in fear, but in the freedom and power of the Holy Spirit to do what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.